Isaiah 49 is our text this morning, and I would invite you to get a Bible somewhere and turn to that passage, Isaiah 49. I'd like to begin this morning just by reading our text for the sermon, which is the first seven verses of Isaiah's 49th chapter. Listen to me, O coastlands, give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord God, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. I want to draw your attention first of all to the third verse in order to put this entire paragraph into context for us. The third verse begins this way, And he, that is talking about God, the Lord, Yahweh, he said to me, so here's the other speaker, he said to me, you are my, what? You are my servant. We have come this morning to the second extended passage about the servant of the Lord in the book of Isaiah. They are sometimes called servant songs because each of these extended sections ends with a call to sing praises to the Lord. We've already seen one. It was back in chapter 42. And there we saw that the Lord's servant was sanctified. He was called, chosen by God set apart for a particular work that God had in mind for him. And then we see this chapter. We're going to spend the next two or three or more weeks looking through this 49th chapter at the saving mission of the servant. His mission was to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And then in chapter 50, we will come to, Lord willing in time, we will see the submissiveness of that servant how that he submitted to God in every way. 
And then finally, we'll come to the great climax of these servant songs in Isaiah chapter 52 and on into chapter 53. And there we will see the servant suffering, but successful in his mission, which God gave him to accomplish. This is one of the most holy sections of Scripture I can imagine in all of the Word of God that exalt and lift up the servant of Jehovah. And perhaps the most important element in this whole discussion about the servant of the Lord is his identity. Who is the servant of Jehovah? This is the very issue that was raised by the Ethiopian official in the book of Acts, chapter 8. Remember the eunuch from Ethiopia that had traveled to Jerusalem and had gotten a hold of a portion of the scroll of Isaiah, and he had this copy of the scroll in his wagon as he was making his way back to Africa. And there he was reading, and of all places he was reading these very servant songs, particularly from the book of Isaiah chapter 53, that climactic song. And remember that the Lord, in his mercy, sent Philip, the evangelist, the deacon, down to minister the gospel to this Ethiopian. And he was invited aboard the chariot, and there he began to read out of the scroll of Isaiah, and the Ethiopian asked this question, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Who's he talking about? What's the identity of this servant of the Lord? About himself? Is Isaiah the servant? Or is this about someone else? And Philip, the Bible says, opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, with this passage in Isaiah, he began to tell him the good news about who? About Jesus, of course. And by God's grace, most of us have come to see, to believe that these passages written 700 years before his birth about this coming servant of Jehovah, that these passages were indeed fulfilled in the life and ministry and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of the new, these passages, all four of them, are quoted or alluded to by New Testament authors and applied to Jesus Christ. They're seen as fulfilled in his life and ministry. But the identity of this servant is vehemently rejected by most Jews. The identification of Jesus from Nazareth as, in fact, the servant of Jehovah predicted by Isaiah the prophet is disputed by so many Jews. This past week I watched a good bit of a a video um, that was a Jewish apologetic, an apologetic for Judaism, that is non Christian Judaism, and uh, it's put out by a group called Jews for Judaism. Some of you have heard of Jews for Jesus, an evangelistic ministry. This is Jews for Judaism. Rabbi Michael Skoback was dealing with these servant songs, and he was trying his best to assure his, I'm guessing, primarily Jewish listeners that in fact the Christian identification of the servant of the Lord with Jesus as the Messiah was not what these passages were intended to say at all. 
that this is a misreading, a misappropriation, in fact, of these texts. He went on to assert that the servant of Jehovah here, the servant of Yahweh, is in fact the nation of Israel as a whole. That the Lord is speaking of them as a singular whole. And uh, he went on later on in the video to talk about his interaction with one particular Christian evangelist and how that evangelist had confronted him about the wording uh, with regard to this servant in Isaiah 53 that said that there was no deceit in his mouth. And the question was put to him as to whether that was true of that nation, of all of those Jewish people. Can they really say that there has been no deceit in their mouths? And if his, his answer was to sort of backpedal a little bit and to say, well, we're not talking about all of the Jewish people that have ever lived, but rather those who are the righteous Jews, which I think really begs the question, which Jew is righteous? Point him out to me. Where is the Jew? In fact, where is the human being in whose mouth is no deceit at all? What does the Bible say? Our tongues are like poisonous snakes. And we spew out from our tongues lies, deceit, envy, and hatred, abuse, right? This is true of all of us. Every one of us, we've all gone astray. So who is this person? Now I want to see what does this text indicate about this person. And this is one of the most helpful of these four in really identifying the nature or the identification of this figure. So notice, first of all, if, if you're looking at the first seven verses here, the, that it is the servant of the Lord who's speaking primarily. Sometimes he's quoting God, Yahweh, about his calling of the servant, but the servant is speaking, and the servant's speaking is consistently in the singular. He speaks of himself as me or I all the way through this entire section. Now, of course, that doesn't preclude the possibility that this is a kind of collective singular, right? Like we might speak of America or any nation as a singular entity. We might say, may God bless her. Who? Well, we're talking about the nation as a whole. So it doesn't necessarily exclude that possibility, but I think the text itself gives an indication of what God intended his people to see here if they would have eyes to really see. Verse 3. Let me show you two verses, and we're going to compare them. The first is verse 3. Here's the servant of the Lord speaking, this figure. And the servant says this, He said to me, He being God, being Jehovah, He said to me, You are my servant. What's the next word? Israel. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So it seems obvious to some people right there that this is a reference to the whole nation, right? It says right there, my servant is Israel. It's the nation. It's that people. You are my servant, Israel. But then in almost the very next breath, he says this in verse 5. Now I want you to take note of verse 5 and compare it to verse 3. This is still the servant of the Lord speaking. And he says, He that is the Lord formed me from the womb to be his servant. To do what? To bring Jacob 
back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. So I ask you again, who is this servant of the Lord? He cannot be the nation as a whole, for in verse 5, the servant is sent to restore the nation. What you have is a a case in which the servant is both identified with Israel, verse 3, and individually distinguishable from Israel, verse 5. In other words, you have what is... What's being pictured here, what's being foreseen, is a person who is speaking, an individual, singular person, who yet at the same time embodies the whole of God's people. Similar to the way in which you might say that the nation of Israel all sprang from the body of their forefather, Jacob. Here is another person, another figure, a servant of God who embodies in himself, all of the people. And that is, he embodies all that Israel was supposed to be. Namely, a people who glorified God in heaven. He stands, this servant, as the embodiment and the representative of those people. Like we would have in our country an ambassador or some representative of our nation who would go abroad and might put his pen to paper and sign a treaty or an agreement on behalf of all of us, and we would say, or we would hear on the news in the evening, the United States signed a treaty. All right? Here is a person who is embodying the nation, who is representing that nation, that people. But now I want to also say that This is not ultimately about a natural connection, but rather a supernatural one. This connection between the servant of the Lord and the people Israel is not ultimately a natural connection, but a a supernatural connection. And you see it almost even indicated or hinted at by the wording that's being used. Because remember that all of Jacob sprang from their forefather, whose natural name was not Israel. Right? What was his natural name, his, his given name? It was Jacob, right? They're all descendants of Jacob, these people of, we call them the, the nation of Israel. They're descendants of Jacob as he was given by nature, by birth. This name, Israel, is given by God himself. This is God's doing. This is something that is beyond nature. And I think that's probably just kind of a by the way, why the passage begins the way it does. Look in the very first verse. If this is all about that earthly nation, why does he begin in the way he does? Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, O peoples from afar. He's speaking about something here that's more than just a natural connection between the servant of Jehovah and the people of Israel. There is a a supernatural connection, if you will. Now, the servant's connection, his physical connection to Jacob, was crucial. It was absolutely crucial. uh, Because God promised that his Messiah, if I can use that term now and introduce that, God promised that his Messiah would be, in fact, a descendant of Jacob. God promised further 
In narrowing that promise, he promised that he would not only be a descendant of Jacob, but he would come from the tribe of Judah. And God further narrowed his promise when he identified the family line of King David as those who would be the progenitors of the Christ. So that physical connection is not unimportant. In fact, the New Testament writers make pains to include the genealogies, pointing out the fact that Jesus could trace his lineage through David and Judah and Jacob and Abraham. The Lord promises all came to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. You could kind of think of it like the top end of a funnel, right? God makes this promise, and then over time he narrows it and narrows it and narrows it, and it becomes obvious that all of his promises are focused in on one individual who will yet now do something for the benefit of the whole of God's people. This is the way that this works. That the Lord, through all of this Old Testament history, is sort of narrowing the referent of his promise. Who will this be? Until it comes down to a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. But that narrow family line ends physically with Jesus, doesn't it? Where are the children of Jesus? Who did he marry? What physical offspring did he have? Well, we know he had none, no physical descendants. Nevertheless, do you know what Isaiah is going to say about him? In chapter 53, the last of these servant songs, he shall see his offspring. Here is now a line that is no longer physical in descent down to the one about whom it was all upon whom it was all focused. Here is now a connection that is spiritual. Spiritual children. God's ultimate offspring, his true sons, his true Israel are not those who are naturally connected to Christ, though they were a picture, but those who are supernaturally or spiritually connected, those are the people that this servant of the Lord embodies and represents. And the most important question that any human being could ever ask himself is whether he is included in that people that are connected to and represented by this servant of the Lord, the Messiah. Am I connected to him such that what God says about him and the salvation that will come through him has benefits for me? How can I be a beneficiary of this? Am I really connected? And so I want to say a few things about that connection that the servant of the Lord has with his people. That connection is, first of all, a supernatural connection. It is not created by any natural ties. It doesn't come about by natural birth, but by supernatural birth, by the new birth, by being born from above, born again. If there is anyone who is wondering whether or not these 
promises and these assurances of salvation that are unfolded in this text have meaning for you yourself. You should pray, oh God, please do a supernatural work in me. It's a supernatural connection. It is also a gracious connection. It is gracious. God is free in this. This is not something that is a matter of course, like, well, you know, you got together, and you and your spouse, and you had this child, and that's just the natural course of things. This is gracious. God is free in this in regards to those whom he will bring into connection to his son. He makes his choice. He is free, and none of us can put God into our debt that we might be connected to Christ and have the benefits of all of the work of this servant. It is a gracious connection. It is a spiritual connection. This connection of the people to the servant of the Lord, this connection comes about by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Isaiah has been saying all along, we've seen this over and over again, that when this figure will come on the scene, he will be endued with the Holy Spirit. He will be filled. The Holy Spirit will come and rest upon him. We saw this back in chapter 42. God's Spirit will fill this person in a way that is unlike anything that the world has ever seen. It will flow from him. He will be so filled with the Holy Spirit that the Spirit of God will flow out from him like a river flows out of its spring. And that river, wherever it flows, brings life. Life just springs up along that river. And that river is the Holy Spirit who pours out of his heart and into the hearts of all who are united with him. They share his Spirit. The reason that they are united to the servant who does the will of God, the the way that they're united is by having implanted within them the same spirit that indwelled him. They share the same spirit. And then if you share the same spirit, there is that deep connection. Not just that they have the same sort of spirit about them, but they have the same sort of spirit in them. They are one with him in a way that is spiritual. It is a spiritual connection, and it is finally a faith connection. A faith connection. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are saved by grace through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. They are justified in Jesus Christ on the basis of faith. It is a faith connection. Faith is the indicator. It's the key. It's the tell-all sign that they are made one with Jesus, that they have a connection to this servant of the Lord who will be lifted up and exalted and glorified for all eternity. How do they know they have a connection with him? And the answer is, you can see it in their faith. You can see it because they say, He is Lord. He is Lord. And I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. They have faith in Him. It is a faith connection. I want to ask you, have you ever put your faith in and upon Jesus as your Lord? Acknowledged Him as Lord 
and master and God of your life? Do you ever come to the point of really putting your trust and dependence all resting upon this servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ? Have you ever called out to Him for your salvation? Oh Lord God, I'm a sinner, but I believe that Jesus is your Son whom you gave for the sins of the world. My hope and trust is in Him and upon Him. And I ask you for Jesus' sake, oh Lord, please save me. Please grant to me that salvation that belongs to Him for all of the nations of the world. Please include me in that, oh Lord. You come to a point of confessing that kind of real heartfelt faith in Jesus as the Messiah and the servant of the Lord. I'm not talking just merely about acquaintance with God. I believe that God exists. There are plenty of people that believe that God exists but do not acknowledge Jesus as Lord. I'm not talking merely just about believing in the historicity of Jesus as a, as a figure in time, space. I'm talking about real heartfelt trust and dependence and love and allegiance because you believe that he is lifted up by God to be Lord of all and you joyfully submit to that. If so, then you are connected to him. That's evidence of your connection. And if you are connected, then listen to this, then everything, this is amazing, if you are connected to him this way, then everything that God says about this servant is true for you. <laughs> I mean, his inheritance is yours because you're connected. Because he embodies you as one of his people. He represents you in all that he did and all that he does. That is good news indeed. Listen, every bit of the Christian message of good news is wrapped up in this person, this figure who is put forth before our view in this text. Jesus Christ is the good news. He is the gospel. The gospel is not do. The gospel is not affirm. The gospel is Him. And if you are connected to Him... If you are part of that which he embodies and represents, then you have all that belongs to him. But if you are separated from him, then you are separated from all that is God's and all that is his blessing and all that is joy and all that is his glory and will be separated, will be separated for all eternity from the beauty and the goodness and the holiness and the joy of the presence of God. It is all about this figure. That's why I say the identity of this person is essential in coming to these texts. Now what I want you to see is then what the Lord says about this servant, about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we see is that the servant of the Lord foretells in verse 1, the middle of verse 1, he foretells his call. And it is a prenatal call. It is a call upon him that took place even before his birth. 
Right? See what he says in the middle of verse 1. The Lord, this is the servant speaking, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. That's the voice of the servant of the Lord. Now, the Lord chose Jacob even in the womb, right? We read about that back in Genesis 25. We've read that. But God did not give him the name Israel until much later in his life. But before Jesus was even born, Matthew chapter 1 says that God sent an angel from heaven to come to Joseph in a dream. And that angel, verse 21, gave Joseph this message, Matthew 1.21. He said, now your betrothed wife, Mary, she will bear a son. And this was, of course, before Mary and Joseph had ever come together. This was a miraculous thing. He says, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Right? What does Isaiah say? The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. That's what the servant of the Lord says. And here we read of the historic outworking of exactly when that took place. You will call his name, the angel says, Jesus. And do you know what Jesus means? Sometimes we say salvation. The name means salvation. And it, it kind of a shorthand for it. The name means Jehovah or Yahweh, the Lord, saves. God saves. You shall call his name God saves. Why is he given that name? Here's the answer that the angel gave. Now think about this in terms of the meaning of that name. The Lord saves. Yahweh saves. He says, give him that name because he will save his people from their sins. Give him the name Yahweh saves. Why? Because the baby will save. Now what do you think is being implied there? But that the baby is Yahweh in the flesh, in human form. Salvation is of the Lord, make no doubt about that. does not come through any ordinary human being, even called by God to do mighty things, like, like Moses or like Joshua or someone like that. Salvation is of the Lord, and yet the angel says, He, the baby, will save his people. From their sins. How can that be? Well, look at the very next verse, verse 22. All of this, Matthew says, took place. The whole naming thing and what the angel said about the reason for that name, all of that took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And guess what prophet it is? <laughs> it's the prophet Isaiah, the one we're reading. All of this, Matthew says, fulfills what Isaiah said 700 some years before. Right? Talk about prenatal call. All of this fulfills what was spoken by the prophet, verse 23, Behold, this is a quotation from Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. God saves. Call him that, because this baby saves. How can that be? He will be Emmanuel, God with us with us. His name was named before he was even born. 
this babe would be God in human flesh, God in the second person of his being would become his own servant to do his will, to bring salvation of his own hand for his people. A salvation that none of the human beings of the earth would ever manage to accomplish for themselves or for anyone else. God would undertake. God would bring salvation for his people. Part of having faith in Jesus as the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, is believing that he is God in the flesh. Are you ready to own that? Are you ready to affirm that? That Jesus of Nazareth was none other than God in the flesh? That he, God, is your Savior? You know, most Jews think that Christians just kind of got carried away with Jesus. They are quick to affirm. I was in Israel back in 2007 and had an Israeli guide who was quick to affirm that Jesus was a very good man, wonderful prophet, sent from God. But you know, the view is that Christians just kind of got carried away, got a little too excited about Jesus, and started thinking of Jesus as actually being God himself. And in their reverence for Jesus, they really turned away from God. Are you ready with God's own self-revelation to acknowledge that God has revealed himself as the Savior. He has revealed himself as the Savior. Even from the Messiah's womb, even in all of these years before he was born, that God named his name and called him. God is the Savior. We see secondly here in this passage that the servant also speaks about God's preparation of him in verse 2. What does the Lord, what does the servant of the Lord say about the way that God prepared him for this work? He says, He made my mouth like a what? Like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. And in his quiver, He hid me away. Here is the servant of the Lord telling about how God prepared him, right? He made me. He prepared me in a certain way, says the Messiah. And he hid me away until the time was right. Hidden away in the womb of the virgin. Hidden away in obscurity until the time was right. But what was God doing? How was God preparing him? How was God making him? His servant. What was he making him into? Well, look at the text. He's making him into a an arrow. And he's making his mouth into a sword. These are weapons of war. And that may be surprising. You know, we think of Jesus who came to be the prince of what? Came to be the prince of peace, of course. When he was born, the angel said, Peace on earth to men with whom God is pleased. The question is, well, how is it that now he's spoken of as an arrow, a sharp-tipped arrow ready to be, I mean, the, the whole servant of the Lord is, is pictured as an arrow ready to be unleashed by God himself into the world. How is it that his mouth is spoken of as a sword? I mean, what kind of sense does this make? But I think, you know, when we stop and think about it, we all realize 
that because of the evil in the world, sometimes you have to go to war in order to bring lasting peace. Isn't that true? That's true in, in history. You want to see real peace in the face of evil and injustice, sometimes you have to bear the sword. What is it that is the weapon of the servant of the Lord? In a general sense, he is the weapon. He is the arrow ready to be unleashed. But in a specific sense, the weapon is his what? His mouth, his tongue, his words. His words are the weapons that God will use in the world. Now that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ who came and when he spoke, his words brought division. I mean, like a sword, they just cut right down through people and divided people from one to the other. It's really what his words did. Just cut right down the middle. Sometimes even right down the middle of a family because of the differing ways in which the family members responded to his words. Remember, he said at one point, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I came to separate the the son from his father and the daughter from her mother and the daughter-in-law from her mother-in-law. I came, my words are going to divide right down the middle. And you know, his words, when he spoke them, they cut deeply, not only between people, but right into people. Think about the ways that Jesus spoke. I've had this hit me so many times when I'm reading the Gospels that I've been sort of shocked a little bit surprised about how the Lord responded to people. Sometimes in a way that, you know, just seemed a little abrupt, a little too straightforward. Even to people who seemed to be somewhat positively inclined towards him. You think about the woman at the well. Remember the woman at the well? He met, he began, he struck up this conversation, and she said at one point, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Right? She was being very um, respectful and honoring of him. And what does he say next? He says, go get your husband and come back and talk to me. And of course, that word cuts right to the heart of her sin because she says, well, I I don't have a husband. And he says, yes, you've had five husbands. And the one you're sleeping with now isn't even your husband. So the Lord does this, right? His words cut. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that they're like a sharp two-edged sword that pierce even right down to our soul and spirit. And I think anybody who's ever been a Christian for very long has known what that is, to have the Word of God come and just pierce your conscience, to just cut you open and lay you bare before God. This is the way that the Lord has prepared His servant to speak in that way that cuts away the pride and rebellion and self-righteousness of human beings. You know, the reason that his words come to us as weapons is because we have made ourselves enemies of God. And his word, if it will ever heal, it has to first cut. It's like the surgeon who's going to do surgery on you. Before he ever comes in and removes what's cancerous, he must take the scalpel and cut you open. And that's what the Bible says that God's servant will do. He will come and bring words like a sword. And it is the initial saving experience of so many Christians 
that the very first thing his word ever brought them was pain, conviction, heaviness. Bunyan pictures this in the very beginning of his allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, when the pilgrim is reading a book, reading the word, and when the more he reads, the more he feels this burden on his shoulders. This is what the word of God does. It comes and brings a sword but that sword is meant to cut, to expose, and to remove what is sinful and ugly and cancerous in order that God may put a new heart in. And the surgeon, when he cuts, why does he cut? He cuts so he can heal, right? And this is the reason the Lord cuts us open at times. This is the reason he exposes our sin. Have you ever had your sinfulness exposed by the word of God, just been sort of laid open and laid bare. You know, there are a lot of people that respond to that with pride, with frustration, anger, self-righteousness, rejection. And those people are in, and will end up being destroyed by the sword. But you can respond with yielding, with letting yourself be cut open so that in the end you may have peace with God. The Lord prepared His servant to be a weapon to cut open the hearts of sinful men. And then in verses 3 and 4, the servant tells of the Lord's pronouncement about him and his response to that pronouncement. Now, look at this. Look at verse 3. Follow along. Let's see our beloved Lord lifted up. Verse 3. And he, that is the Lord, said to me, the servant, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Of course, that is what most of the nation failed to do, to glorify God. And of course, at the very end of Jesus' life, he was actually able to say in all honesty to God in heaven, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He was a good and faithful servant, right? This is John 17. I have obeyed your word. I have glorified you in the world. But do you remember what happened immediately after John 17? John 17, Jesus was with his disciples in the temple probably after leaving the upper room, making his way down into the Garden of Gethsemane. And what would happen that very night? He would be arrested, tried, and the next day nailed to a cross. On one day, he says, I have glorified you, O God. I've done everything that you want me to do. I've been a good and faithful servant. And the next day, what happens? God turns his back on him. I've done everything you want me to do. And yet, here's the way it's spoken of him in verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. That's the very next day. In spite of his predicted success, he will experience apparent failure. Right? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John 1. It was prophesied in the book of Daniel that after the appointed time, the Messiah, quote, would be cut off and have nothing. That was the prophecy. That was what would happen with the servant of the Lord. He would do everything to glorify God perfectly obey the master, and yet, at the end of the day, he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
We hid our faces from him. We esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken by God and smitten, getting what he deserves. That was, the, that was the, apparently the way he died. He died absolutely alone. Most of his disciples having fled, apparently abandoned even by his Father in heaven. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, Jesus knew what it was like to feel like his labors had been in vain. Right? Apparently, there's a way to agonize over the unfruitfulness of your labors for God that's not sinful. And our Lord would come to the end of his life having done everything, having said everything, listen to this, having said everything in every single moment exactly what God wanted him to say, having made every single choice exactly in accordance with the will of his Father, having labored and served to the point of exhaustion again and again and again and again and again for his whole life. Able to say, I've done everything that you want me to do. I've glorified you on the earth. My, my job is done. And at the end of the day, he came down and said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. You know, just to sort of by the way, but I don't want, you to, I don't want any of us to think that Christ-likeness will keep you from disappointment that it will keep you from being disappointed at the lack of response. Jesus himself wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you, but you would not. Imagine coming to the end of your life, and it seemed like you've done everything exactly as you're supposed to have done it. You did everything right. But at the end, it just seems like everything you've done was a complete waste. And it was all futile. It didn't, it didn't accomplish anything. Can you just sort of imagine that just a little bit? Now, how does this perfect servant of the Lord deal with that kind of discouragement? And the answer is, he continued speaking to himself. Look at verse 4. Notice where the quotation marks end. I quit in the middle of the verse. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. Right? But the quotation marks don't end until the end of the verse. How does the servant deal with this apparent lack of success? He does so by speaking to himself. And what does he speak to himself? He says this, Yet surely my right is with my Lord, is with the Lord, and my recompense is with God. At the end of the day, in spite of the discouragement and the apparent failure of his ministry to save his people from their sin. At the end of all of that, and it seemed like it was all for nothing, he says, but Lord, I put it in your hands. I trust you. And he literally, even when God the Father turned his back on his son, Jesus ends the last breath. He says what? Father, into your hands I commit myself. I give my life back to you. Just like he did his whole life. What a servant. What faithfulness. What trust, what dependence. You have never seen a servant of the Lord like this one. And this kind of servant deserves to be exalted to the highest station. And now, in light of the prediction of the Messiah's utter trust in God, even in the face of apparent failure, now, because that's the first word in verse 5, now, the Lord announces his great global purpose for raising up this servant. Look at verse 5. And now the Lord says, 
He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. What is it that the Lord says about him? What purpose does he proclaim? Here it is, verse 6, the Lord says, It is to light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Lord in heaven, in light of the absolute faithfulness of this servant, his perfect obedience, even in the face of apparent failure, his trust in God, the Lord says, in light of that, I will exalt this servant. That kind of faithful service, utter trust in the Lord, in spite of all appearances, that deserves the highest exaltation. The salvation of the Jewish elect is not reward enough, the Lord says. I will give him a people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue on the face of the earth. I will give him a kingdom that is global. That's what that kind of service deserves. And earlier we saw this when when we read Philippians chapter 2, right? He became obedient. That was what it meant to be a servant. He took the form of a servant doesn't just mean that he served us, though he did, but he served the Father, becoming obedient to God, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, even death utterly abandoned, even death that seemed for nothing. He trusted himself to the Father and did everything that the Father wanted to. Then what? Therefore, because of that, or to use the word here, now God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. God has lifted him up and glorified him because he deserves it. Because there never was in all of the history of the world a servant of Jehovah like this one. He will give him a global people. God was so pleased with the perfect obedience of his son that he gives him this worldwide kingdom. It began with 12 men. But now, what's that kingdom look like now? Well, I can only say this. One out of every three people on the face of this planet confesses the name of Christ. The Lord says, I will give him a kingdom from every tribe. I will give him a people from all of the peoples on the face of the earth. That's what this kind of service deserves. And so, though his own people did not receive him, the final verse, verse 7 gives a further prediction that kings and rulers of the earth will bow down and stand up in his honor, pay homage to him. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to the deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. That is, the servant of the Lord was deeply despised and abhorred by the people of Israel, despised and abhorred by the servant considered to be a servant of these rulers like Herod and Pilate. What does the Lord say about this despised and rejected servant? He says this, Kings shall see, kings will see what you have done and do what? Stand up on their feet. Now when you're in the presence of someone great, you should be standing, not them. But here are the great ones of the earth who are standing when the king of kings walks into the room and they shall prostrate themselves. They shall bow before this king and do homage to him. 
How is that when even his own people don't believe him? How is it that all of these kings and rulers of the earth are going to bow before him? And the answer is in the end of the verse, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you, the Lord will see to it. The Lord will make sure that this servant gets what he deserves, gets the honor and the glory and the adulation and the worship and the devotion and the reverence and the obedience that he rightfully deserved. Do you see what I'm saying? Salvation, in the end, is all about Jesus. It is all about God's delight in himself, in the person of his Son, such that he exalts him, and the beneficiaries of that are all of us who are united to him by his grace, by his supernatural regeneration through faith, united to him. We are beneficiaries. God is so pleased with his son that he will cause the rulers of the earth to bow before him. The nations and the rulers will see what the people of Israel were too blind to see. They will stand in honor of him and bow before him. You know, I uh, did a little search on Wikipedia, that great source of all knowledge. And uh, there's an entry in Wikipedia that's just titled this way. Quote, list of rulers who converted to Christianity. (laughs) It's an interesting list. I'm sure not complete by any means, but it is interesting. There are 48 listings there. They run from the 1st century to the 19th century. There are rulers, historic accounts, references to historic accounts of rulers who converted to Christ, at least in name, the rulers of countries and empires and lands far and wide, rulers of Armenia, the Roman Empire, France, England, Bohemia, Hungary, Russia, Sweden, Poland, various African countries and isolated island nations across the world, and on and on it goes. Was the Lord true to his word? And who knows what the Lord will continue to do in glorifying His Son in the days and years and centuries, is it, to come? Whatever the Lord ordains. Most Christmases we uh, hear parts of Handel's great oratorio, The Messiah. One of the most, to me, one of the most amazing pieces of music. When I was a kid, you know, all the other kids are listening to whatever they're listening to, and me and my best friend were listening to Handel's Messiah on the bus on the way back and forth to camp. That's what we listened to. Beautiful. And there are three parts to that. Now, at Christmas time, we usually hear just like a, a condensed version of it that captures. The first part is about the Messiah's birth, the second part about his crucifixion, and the third about the consummation. And uh, at the end of the second part is this. You know, you have these solos and you have these choruses where a great choir sings and you have the most well-known chorus from the whole piece of work called the Hallelujah Chorus. And it's said that in the original London premiere of that piece of work, when the chorus got to Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent, reigneth, that King George II, the King of England, was so moved that he stood out of reverence for the Messiah. And that tradition, at least, continues on even until this day. How is it 
that this king of the Jews, rejected by his own people, will have the most powerful leaders of some of the greatest countries in all of history bow the knee before him, stand in honor of him, because the Lord, who is faithful, has chosen him. Friends, it is God's great master plan to glorify his son. This is it. You want to know what is all of history about? I have the answer for you. God's whole purpose in history is to glorify himself in the person of his son. In the fullness of time to unite all things into him who is the head. To put him at the pinnacle. To give him a name that is above every name in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That every knee should bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus is Lord. That is God's great purpose. And nothing, listen, nothing has or will stop God from accomplishing his purpose. And if you will bow, you may enter into the joy and the glory of that eternal kingdom of the Messiah. If not, if you will refuse to submit your thinking, your decisions, your life, your beliefs, if you will refuse to submit to the one that God himself has chosen to be king and Lord, then you will be fighting against the divinely ordained trajectory of all of human history. And while it may seem that you're on the winning side for a moment and for for a lifetime, in the end, I'm warning every one of us that we will be separated on the wrong side of history, separated from God for all eternity. So what's the application? Well, I can't think of any way to put it better than the words of the second psalm. Now therefore, O kings and all the rest of us, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, kiss the sun, lest he be angry, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Pay homage to him, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, for his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Amen? Amen.